Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. Ubuntu, I am because we are, is the African concept of humanity whereby one's life is worth living only if it elevates other lives. All lives are intertwined and find the meanings in the tapestry of value they grant each other. No life ever stands in isolation. Serving as the social contract, Ubuntu has held African communities together since time immemorial. Today, however, Ubuntu is under attack as African political leaders and regimes no longer prioritize the value of human life. Human rights abuses, mismanagement of resources, corruption and greed have effectively depreciated the value of life on the continent. With armed conflict and public discontent flaring up in various corners of Africa, now is the time to return to Ubuntu. Time to honor the value of human life through good governance, equitable access to resources, justice and the rule of law. Joining me on Into Africa is Chidiogo Akunyilipar a Nigerian writer, storyteller, and a movement builder who champions the power of people to change the world. Her recently released book, I Am Because We Are, An African Mother's Fight for the Soul of a Nation, is a nod, a tribute, and a celebration of the life of a late mother, Dr. Nora Kem Akunyuli, who served as the Director General of Nigeria's National Agency for Food and Drug Administration and Control from 2001 and 2009. She passed away in 2014. Dr. Akunyuli is remembered for the campaign she waged against the vast network of manufacture of fake medicines in Nigeria. Welcome to Diogo. Thank you so much, Nvemba. It's such a pleasure and an honor to be here. Your book is really a celebration of the life of your mother, the late Dr. Nkem Akunyuli. But it's really a story of intimacy, the love of a mother for her family, her community, and her country. Here, you set out to follow in the footsteps of your mother and you trace her life. How did you go through this journey and why? First of all, I'll start by just sort of honoring that introduction on Ubuntu because the title of the book is I Am Because We Are, which is a derivation of that very deep philosophy that has so many ways of looking at it ultimately is that value of human life. And you're asking me how I went about telling that story. First of all, because it was a story worth telling. I believe that our stories matter, especially in these pivotal, important times that we are at a crossroads. There are two ways we can go. For us to choose the way that really honors that future that we want to birth, it's important to lean on the shoulders of those that have come before us, that have teachings and wisdom to bestow upon us, and those who have been through the fight and how they fought it and how they persevered. She was one of such people. Her life was really a testament to how difficult it can get, but ultimately how individuals have an important role to play in this transformational journey that we are on, for better or for worse, speaking in terms of the continent as a whole, perhaps. So her story was really important because she inspired millions by the work that she did 
bringing safety to a world that or a situation that was very unsafe. And when, if you can imagine when your food or your drink or your water, your baby food, your medicine is not safe. People are dying every day for no need. And those people are those seeds of change. And she saw that very quickly, also founded on her own personal grief, having lost her sister to fake insulin. So it was a personal battle. And she refused all sorts of lures of bribery and corruption and money and fame that were promised to her to turn a blind eye, but instead did her work. And that brought her all the things that she refused. So I think there's something about that life, but there were sacrifices and there was pain. There was an assassination attempt. One had a bullet graze her scalp, and this is one of many. So it's a hard journey we're being invited to stand up to that which is working against the masses. But at the same time, how do we learn from those who have done it? And I believe this is such a story and that's what inspired me. And this is why I've written it. You speak inner voice in the book. You write inner personal voice. And that I find to be interesting, but also very powerful. Obviously, Dr. Cunyoli has departed this world several years now. But to hear her talk, to hear talk about her ancestors, to her talk about her life as a young woman in Anambra State and other parts of Nigeria, but also to go through the Biafra War through her, I thought was very powerful. How were you able to harness her voice to take us into her mindset? It's so interesting. You know, this was the thing that from the beginning, because I felt like she invited me even past life to write her story. I really felt that calling in myself. And the invitation was to do it as she would in her voice. But I shied away from this because it just felt overwhelming. And her voice is markedly different from mine and her way of expressing herself. So I wrote the whole book as if I were telling you her story. There was something so distant, there was a distance between her and the reader that I felt did not allow for her story to really reach you because I was always there, always telling a story as opposed to you really hearing from the horse's mouth her story. And that was her power. She was such a powerful force. So I ended up stepping back and leaning into that first invitation and trusting that I am my mother's daughter and if anybody could channel her voice and trust that she could speak directly to the reader, I could attempt that. So I went back and I started sort of revisiting everything I'd written, how I'd written it, and almost rewrote the book. And only then did it feel right. So it was a little bit of fear, then like doing it the different way and seeing that it wasn't quite what the book wanted to be. I trusted letting a book like also show you the way. And this was what was wanting to come through. And I'm so happy with the feedback because you really do feel like she's speaking to you. And I like to think that she is. This is a very spiritual journey, I'll suppose, connecting with your mother, whose spirit, I suppose, was still with you. Did she visit you in any other ways, through dreams or through other mediums? It's so interesting that something else, such a huge part of us in Africa, like across African traditions of ancestry and spirits and communion with our ancestors is now almost something that we shy away from really expressing because like the first night I came to my mind is like, oh my gosh, I don't want people to, you know, like project some sort of narrative on what it means for someone to visit you from the dead. 
But it's really interesting to, in this journey, to acknowledge fully for myself that there is so much truth in being able to connect to the essence of those that we come from. And ultimately, you can even look at the science that is starting to prove that the DNA lingers and, you know, that we have pieces of our mothers in ourselves or mothers carry pieces of their kids and so on. So until science tells us there's something, we often have that skepticism. This journey of writing the book and really at moments of being stuck and you know, not quite knowing the direction, I would lean on asking her. I would literally like, mommy, I don't know who I should talk to. And an inspiration will come through. It could be an email. It could be a, a, a text message. It doesn't have to be a voice. And so I trust that inspirations are voices all around us. And one call someone would make or a thought that you forgot you had that comes through back again or a note you put somewhere you find writing a book of this nature, you start doubting this availability of this guidance to us, to me. So that's something I ended up leaning on very heavily. And I like to know that she was always with me, not even visiting, just with me constantly. And I would always know that I could ask, I could trust, I could leave a question open and know that I have to put my pen to paper and trust that what comes through is in line with what is needed to be said. Very powerful. Nigeria is no easy place. Nigeria, your country, is one that I love. I love the food. I love the people. But the moment you get off that plane, you know you're in a very tough neighborhood. Your mother, being a woman in a setting that is fully controlled by these, quote-unquote, for lack of a better word, oligarchs. You know, this is a mafia-like network that we're dealing with. How did she have the courage Early on, you talk about the motivation. Her sister was killed because I think there was some problem with the insulin that she took that you said. But how did she find the courage to wage this war against these networks that I'm sure were not easy to tackle? It's a complex story. And within that, it's her origin story. And I, that's why I found it really important to talk and to share in the book where she comes from. And I think that our courage is often rooted in our roots. It's found in our roots, right? Because it's deep. Courage is it's seldom superficial. So hers is deep. Her father before her, her grandfather before her, the matriarch that she learned from her grandmother were people of deep value, you know, goes back to Bungsu. This is who we were. You know, she talks about this in life and it's something that I echo in the book and how growing up, they didn't have a concept of corruption. It was such a strong value around safeguarding and caring for each other. And if you stole, you were shunned for generations. So there was a reverence for doing the right thing. And that's something that history and the different breakdowns in our history and our culture, and you know, you could trace it back as long as you need to of different ruptures that happened, but the more recent history of colonization and decolonization and the Biafra war and the, and the case of Nigeria, where a war that kills over a million people definitely does something to a people and impact that fabric of oneness, of support, of Ubuntu. And this is something we're trying to reclaim. So her courage comes from having lived and grown up in the village, raised by people, founded in those deep-rooted traditions of caring for each other and doing the right thing no matter the cost. 
understanding that our actions reverberate through time is not just about you and your life it's your children your children's children your children's children's children we have that belief as africans as Igbos, as nigerians that your action matters uh, for generations to come and she held that belief dear and then imagine not just her generations but the people that she's supporting your life matters for generations unborn so she saw how important it was to not be afraid and to stand up and i think at the court to be honest, November, she had a deep anchor on God's guidance and knowing that if God, the way she would express it, if God invites her to this fight, she would have her protection. She has what she needs. She's not invited into a space and then you're there to fail. So she saw her work as God's work. And with that, she saw herself as protected. She held that belief. So, you know, after the assassination attempt, the one that was closest with a bullet graze in her scalp, we all begged her to stop, to step down. But it almost doubled her courage because she felt, okay, they've done their worst. And I see now the truth of my being protected. So I think it's something about the values, the roots that she comes from, the people, who she is and how she is, that is also rooted in her Christian belief. And within that, the idea that she is fighting a just war and within that, that she's protected. That is very interesting. I remember reading about the writer, Chimamanda Adichie, who talks about her experience with your mother. She says, I quote, Dora Kunyuli once thrust a rosary into my hand. Keep it with you at all times to protect you because success brings envy, she said, and added as though to brook no argument. Quote, it was blessed in Rome. So obviously your mother was a woman of faith and witnesses have spoken about it since her passing. The question is, the fact that your mother, when she was director general of NAFTAC, had to do this to take this fight, it speaks to the failure of good governance. It speaks to the failure of justice. This is a country where millions of people are left at the mercy of these networks of bandits, really, who are making economic profit. So it's a crisis of public health. It's a crisis of financial impact because I'm sure these networks are not paying taxes. It's really a crisis of lack of accountability. Where is Nigeria going? What is the legacy of the fight that your mother waged when she was on earth with us? And where does this stand today in Nigeria? There's such a sadness to, you know, once in a while people still send me like a product they find in a store that is maybe like a laughable counterfeiting or expired or something that you just see that is tampered with. And someone sends it to me and goes, we miss your mother. When she left NAFDAQ, something that she was so worried about or concerned with was that all the work of those almost a decade would be for nothing. And I don't want to say that's been the case because ultimately I trust that there is some work still being done. But the very act of choosing her replacement was something she didn't have a say in. It became once again political. And very quickly, you know, there was a little bit of like a sense of, yeah, NAFDAQ is not what it used to be. And I think this is the danger in nation building. You know, when to your point, you know, you shouldn't have to put your life on the line for your work. But if one person does find that courage, then there's this sense of, well, then what does she achieve? All of that for where are we now? There's a potential narrative. Things are worse than they were, just as bad. 
And I think this acts as a disservice to those that do want to find the courage in themselves and that desire to be part of nation building. And, you know, to your point, the cost of corruption, cabals, whatever word you want to use to those like bad actors, it's huge. The economic cost, the human cost, the social cost, all of that, right? So there is a lot of benefits to us stepping into the right path and the right way to live. And for some reason, I think our leaders are not fully acknowledging that. And I think it's rooted in still some of the legacies of from the war to the Abacha regime, who was a dictator. Sorry, even before Abacha, you know, just uh, different regimes that inculcated corruption to become a way of life and then by trust you even more rooted in our history in a way that you can explain the erosion that has happened has led us till today where it's normalized and that normalization is something that is a big fight and i don't know that we are winning and you know the classic thing is that we're just waiting for that last generation of leaders to move on to pass on but i feel like their legacy continues and they continue to train the next generation of leaders that they're handpicking there's a boys club that is going on in nigeria for too long where the person before picks the next person and grooms that's what i'm looking for grooms and they groom and they groom so how are these next generation of leaders who are empathetic who are conscious who have a sense of the cost and with it the benefits that could be how can we bring them to the front right now there is no viable path that i'm seeing if we continue the godfatherism the grooming and ultimately the lack of transparency in how we elect our leaders i dare say that it's left to the individual to really find the deep courage to stand up in spite of all the opposition but only if that work sustains and it's already too slow progress and it will be even slower if not this is very insightful in the sense that Nigeria, like most countries, there is a gap between the perception of the place and the reality of the place. When I visit Nigeria, I always have this sense that there is this tremendous tension between the elders and the youth. Nigeria has had various movements, you know, and SARS was the last one. But before that, we have groups like Yaga and other movements like Not Too Young to Run. I always feel like there is on one end a lot of pressure, a lot of tension between the elders and the youth. The elders literally believing only they can deliver for the country and the youth fighting for space, especially for the public service. The youth are often left to fend for themselves, maybe in business, maybe to be entrepreneurs, but the political space seems to be closed to them. I also feel this very strongly when I'm in Nigeria there is also another tension that exists between the male leadership. I think maybe in other circles they call it patriarchy and the emerging female leadership. Nigeria, of course, has a lot of strong female leaders. You know, I just said refer to acclaimed writer Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, the director general of the World Trade Organization, Madame Ngozi Okonjo-Iwela. You know, you have many others yourself emerging. That's a big gap that continues to ail the Nigerian public space. How do you experience that as a young leader yourself? I love that you've given those examples because it speaks to, you know, that space is closed. So there's this fight. It's a big thing to fight against. If you follow the NSAs, it's bloody. Until today, there are people who can't come home. That are The word I'm looking for is when you can't come home, asylum of some sort, because they're still being persecuted by a government that still denies any wrongdoing that included death and so much violence against citizens. 
And the, the demonstration in itself came as a result of people really saying enough of police brutality, enough of the people that are meant to protect us hurting us. On and on it goes. And you mentioned not too young to run. These are young people, some of them friends of mine, who just said, if a 30-year-old came to run for office, it'll be literally laughed off. Right. This is the setting that we have. And you mentioned also the gender, sometimes discrimination, even though I love that you also acknowledge that Nigeria has produced some really strong women. But we have to really be beyond exceptional to reach that point. In my mother's story, there's a part that I reflect in the book of when she's being chosen. And one of the oppositions against her being chosen as director general of NAFDAQ was that she was a woman. So the sense of like, this is a hard job, Baba. This is speaking to Obasanjo, who was the president at the time. Uh, she's a woman, you know, she, are you sure she can handle it? You know, and she, of course, ended up proving herself beyond all reasonable doubt, but that there was even that space to say, she's a woman. Can she handle that? This person is too young. So these are blocks that keep coming up because I mentioned earlier the old boys club and that group is, you know, the block and we're working against it. And, you know, your question is really maybe asking if I have hope. Yes, because the Nigerian spirit is resilient. The Nigerian youth are resilient. And we're seeing that in the entrepreneurship space that they're occupying and blossoming in the last decade where you were seeing unicorns come out of Nigeria. And they're five years, six, ten years in the making. This speaks to the people that come against all odds. And those odds starts with little electricity to, you know, a reliable transport, internet, whatever you can think of is a challenge to an entrepreneur. We have it. And to surpass it and reach and surpass the level of peer globally lets you know about the Nigerian spirit and the youth spirit. And I believe that that is what we're trying to cultivate. That is what I'm trying to, my part, do in this book. Because if you light the fire that says we can do it and, you know, show inspiration and messages and there are different people doing this, that's the momentum that is needed to push against that block that is and eventually reclaim the Nigeria that could be. I like the hope. Hope, of course, does never, ever replace policymaking. That the Nigerian people are resilient, there is no question about it, particularly in entrepreneurship. We see the success that they bring about wherever they go, but policymaking needs to change in Nigeria. Nigeria is the largest economy on the continent, but we're not sure where the impact of that economy is. In other words, no African anywhere on the continent opens their refrigerator to find Nigerian wine or milk or anything else. So that does not happen. We Africans still wonder where Nigeria impact is. We also hope that Nigeria is the power of the sub-region in ECOWAS will show its leadership so that the region can move forward. This is my prayer for Nigeria. But as we think of your mother and the work you just put forward, it is my belief that for economic development and peace to shine again in Africa, we need Ubuntu. And Ubuntu takes various forms, but it's primarily the celebration of life. It's primarily the value of life, that our lives are all intertwined. I'm very heartened that you took the time to walk us through the footsteps of your mother, and I hope that her legacy will continue to shine. I'm particularly encouraged you know, when I think of Africa, often it is the low people, the population at large that fight for change. Often the elites are the ones who are causing trouble. But your mother is an exception, is the exception of the people in power, people who have been given 
the baton, the one to change things, actually gone and fight. So it's an example that I think a lot of us young Africans need to look at closely. My lesson from this is like when we look at Africa, we need to mind the gap. And the mind the gap means look at the perception and look at the reality. The perception of Nigeria is its corruption everywhere. The reality of the story you shared about your mother is that, yes, there's corruption, but there are also warriors, Nigerian women and men who are fighting for change. So I am because we are. Thank you very much, Idiogo, for joining us today. Thank you so much. I feel called to add that we are exporting our music, our art, our fashion, our movies. So just something to perhaps add a little bit of hope to uh, the fight that is. Absolutely. Niger. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. <laughs>